18, to Irkutsk, and regard such a feat about as a countryman on the Penobscot would regard a visit to Boston. The few who have been to Moscow and St. Petersburg have a reputation somewhat analogous to that of Marco Polo or John Ledyard. Walking is rarely practiced, and the numbers of smart turnouts, compared to the population, is pretty large. There is no theater, concert room, or newspaper office at Kyoto, and the citizens rely upon cards, wine, and gossip for amusement. They play much and win or lose large sums with perfect nonchalance. Visitors are rare, and the advent of a stranger of ordinary consequence is a great sensation. Kyokta and Maimaichin stand on the edge of a Mongolian steppe seven or eight miles wide. Very little snow falls there and that little does not long remain. Wheeled carriages are in use the entire year. The elevation is about 2,500 feet above sea level. There was formerly a custom house at Troitskozovsk, where the duties on tea were collected. After the occupation of the Amor the government opened all the country east of Lake Baikal to free trade. The custom house was removed to Irkutsk, where all duties are now ranged. There were two Englishmen and one Frenchman residing at Kyotka. The latter, Mr. Garnier, was a merchant and was about too many a young and pretty Russian whose mother had a large fortune and thirteen dogs. The old lady appeared perfectly clear-headed on every subject outside of dogs. A fortnight before my visit she owned fifteen, but the police killed two on a charge of biting somebody. She was inconsolable at their loss, took her bed from grief, and seriously contemplated going into mourning. I asked Garnier what would be the result if every dog of the thirteen should have his day. Ah. He replied, with a sigh, the poor lady could never sustain it. I fear it would cause her death. One Englishman, Mr. Bishop, had a telegraph scheme which he had vainly endeavored for two years to persuade the stubborn Chinese to look upon with favor. The Chinese have a superstitious dread of the electric telegraph, and the government is unwilling to do anything not in accordance with the will of the people. A few years ago some Americans at Shanghai thought it a good speculation to construct a telegraph line between that city and the mouth of the river. The distance was about 15 miles, and the line when finished operated satisfactorily. The Chinese made no interference, either officially or otherwise, with its construction. They did not understand its working, but suppose the foreigners employed agile and invisible devils to run along the wires and convey intelligence. All went well for a month or two. One night a Chinese happened to die suddenly in a house that stood near a telegraph pole. A knowing celestial suggested that one of the foreign devils had descended from the wire and killed the unfortunate native. A mob very soon destroyed the dangerous innovation. The other Englishman, Mr. Grant, was the projector and manager of a pony express from Kyoto to Peking. He forwarded telegrams between London and Shanghai merchants. Any others who chose to employ him. He claimed that his Mongol couriers made the journey to Peking in 12 days, and that he could outstrip the Suez and Ceylon telegraph and steamers. He seemed a permanent fixture of Kyoto, as he had married a Russian lady, the daughter of a former governor. All these foreigners placed me under obligations for various favors, and the two Britons were certainly more kind to me than to each other. I spent an evening at the club rooms, where there was some heavy card playing. One man lost 900 rubles in half an hour, and they told me that such an occurrence was not uncommon. In all card playing I ever witnessed in Russia there was something to make it interesting. Money is invariably staked, and the Russians were surprised when I said, in answer to questions, that people in America generally indulged in cards for amusement alone.
ladies had no hesitation in gambling, and many of them followed it passionately. Chuck pays a S.A. habitude, remarked a lady one evening when I answered her query about card playing in America. It was the Russian fashion to gamble, and no one dreamed of making the slightest concealment of it. Though I saw it repeatedly I could never rid myself of a desire to turn away when a lady was reckoning her gains and losses, and keeping her accounts on the table cover. Russian card tables are covered with green cloth and provided with chalk pencils and brushes for players' use. Cards are a government monopoly. On the day fixed for my dinner with the Sargucci I accompanied the police master and Captain Molostov to Maymeachin. As we entered the courtyard of the government house several officers came to receive us. In passing the Temple of Justice I saw an unfortunate wretch undergoing punishment in a corner of the yard, who was wearing a collar about three feet in diameter and made of four-inch plank. It was locked about his neck, and the man was unable to bring his hand to his head. A crowd was gazing at the culprit, but he seemed quite unconcerned and intent upon viewing the strangers. The Chinese have a system of yokes and stocks that seem a refinement of cruelty. They have a cheerful way of confining a man in a sort of cage about three feet square, the top and bottom being of plank and the sides of square sticks. His head passes through the top, which forms a collar precisely like the one described above, while the sides are just long enough to force him to stand upon the tip of his toes or hang suspended by his head. In some instances a prisoner's head is passed through a hole in the bottom of a heavy cask. He cannot stand erect without lifting the whole weight and the cask is too long to allow him to sit down. He must remain on his knees in a torturing position, and cannot bring his hands to his head. He relies on his friends to feed him, and if he has no friends he must starve. The jailers think it a good joke when a man loses the number of his mess in this way. The Sarguchi met us in the apartment where our reception took place. He seated us around a table in much the same manner as before. While we waited dinner I exhibited a few photographs of the big trees of California, which I took with me at Molostov's suggestion. I think the representative of His Celestial Majesty was fairly astonished on viewing these curiosities. The interpreter told him that all trees in America were like those in the pictures, and that we had many cataracts four or five miles high. To handle our food we had forks and chopsticks, and each guest had a small saucer of soy, or vinegar, at his right hand. The food was roast pig and roast duck, cut into bits the size of one's thumbnail, and each piece was to be dipped in the vinegar before going into the mouth. Then there were dishes of hashed meat or stew, followed by minced pies in miniature. I was a little suspicious of the last articles and preferred to stick to the pig. We had good claret and bad sherry, followed by Chinese wine. Champagne was brought when we began drinking toasts. Chinese wine, samshu, is drank hot. From cups holding about a thimbleful, it is very strong, one cup being quite sufficient. The historic Bowery boy drinking a glass of Chinese wine might think he had swallowed a pyrotechnic display on 4th of July night. We conversed as before, going through English, French, Russian, Mongol, and Chinese, and after dinner smoked our pipes and cigars. The Sarguchetti had a pipe with a slender bowl that could be taken out for reloading, like the shell of a Remington rifle. A single whiff served to exhaust it, and the smoke passing through water became purified. An attendant stood near to manage the pipe of His Excellency whenever his services were needed. We endeavored to smoke each other's pipes and were quite satisfied after a minute's experience. His tobacco was very feeble, and I presume mine was too strong for his taste. The Sarguchetti had ordered a theatrical display in my honor. 
though it was not the season, and the affair was hastily gotten up. When all was ready he led the way to the theatre, the pipe-bearer came respectfully in our rear, and behind him was the staff and son of the Sarguchi. The stage of the theatre faced an open courtyard, and was provided with screens and curtains, but had no scenery that could be shifted. About thirty feet in front of the stage was a pavilion of blue cloth, open in front and rear. We were seated around a table under this pavilion, and drank tea and smoked while the performance was in progress. There was a crowd of two or three hundred Chinese between the pavilion and the stage. The Mongol soldiers kept an open passage five or six feet wide in front of us so that we had an obstructed view. A comedy came first, and I had little difficulty in following the story by the pantomime alone. Female characters were represented by men, Chinese law forbidding women to act on the stage. Certain parts of the play were open to objections on account of immodesty, but when no ladies are present I presume a Chinese audience is not fastidious. The comedy was followed by something serious, of which I was unable to learn the name. I supposed it represented the superiority of the deities over the living things of earth. First, there came representations of different animals. There were the tiger, bear, leopard, and wolf, with two or three beasts whose general and species I could not determine. There was an ostrich and an enormous goose, both holding their heads high, while a crocodile, or something like it, brought up the rear. Each beast and bird was made of painted cloth over a light framework, with a man inside to furnish action. While the tiger was making himself savage the mask fell off, and revealed the head of a Chinese. A rent in the skin of the ostrich disclosed the arm of the performer inside. The animals were not very well made, and the accident to the tigers had reminded me of the Bowery elephant whose hind legs became very drunk and fell among the orchestra, leaving the four legs to finish the play. Each animal made a circuit of the stage, bowed to the Sarguchi, and retired. Then came half a dozen performers, only one being visible at a time. They were addressed, as I conjectured to represent Chinese divinities, and as each appeared upon the stage he made a short recitation in a bombastic tone. The costumes of these actors were brilliantly decorated with metal ornaments, and there was a luxuriance of beard on most of the performers' faces, quite in contrast to the scanty growth which nature gave them. When the deities were assembled the animals returned and prostrated themselves in submission. A second speech from each actor closed the theatrical display. During all the time we sat under the pavilion the crowd looked at me far more intently than at the stage. An American was a great curiosity in the city limits of May Mayachin. The performance began about two o'clock and lasted less than an hour. At its close we thanked the Sarguchi for his courtesy, and returned to Kyotka. One of my Russian acquaintances had invited me to dine with him, you can dine with the Sarguchi at one o'clock, he said, and will be entirely able to enjoy my dinner two hours later. I found the dinner at May Mayachin more pleasing to the eye than the stomach, and returned with a good appetite. Some years ago the Russian government abolished the office of governor of Kyotka and placed its military and kindred affairs in the hands of the chief of police. Diplomatic matters were entrusted to a commissary of the frontier, who resided at Kyotka, while the chief of police dwelled at Troitskozovsk. When I arrived there, Mr. Fafiz, the commissary of the frontier, was absent. Though hourly expected from Irkutsk, Mr. Fafiz arrived on the third day of my visit, and invited me to a dinner at his house on the afternoon of my departure for Irkutsk. As the first toast of the occasion he proposed the President of the United States, 
and regretted deeply the misfortune that prevented his drinking the health of Mr. Lincoln. In a few happy remarks he touched upon the cordial feeling between the two nations, and his utterance of goodwill toward the United States was warmly applauded by all the Russians present. In proposing the health of the Emperor I made the best return in my power for the courtesy of my Muscovite friends. Chapter XXIX In the year 1786 a vessel of 350 tons burden sailed from an American port for Canton. She was the first to carry the flag of the United States to the shores of Cathay, and to begin a commerce that has since assumed enormous proportions. European nations had carried on a limited trade with the Chinese before that time, but they were restricted to a single port, and their jealousy of each other prevented their adopting those measures of company operation that have recently proved so advantageous. China was averse to opening her territory to foreign merchants and regarded with suspicion all their attempts to gain a foothold upon her soil. On the north, since 1727, the Russians had a single point of commercial exchange. In the south Canton was the only port open to those who came to China by sea, while along the coastline, facing to the eastward, the ports were sealed against foreign intrusion. Commerce between China and the outer world was hampered by many restrictions, and only its great profits kept it alive. But once fairly established, the barbarian merchants taught the slow-learning Chinese that the trade brought advantage to all engaged in it. Step by step they pressed forward, to open new ports and extend commercial relations, which were not likely to be discontinued, if only a little time were allowed to show their value. As years rolled on, trade with China increased. For a long time the foreigners trading with China had no direct intercourse with the general government but dealt only with the local and provincial authorities. It was not until after the famous Opium War that diplomatic relations were opened with the court at Peking, and a common policy adopted for all parts of the empire. In its dealings with the outer world, considering the extremely conservative character of the Chinese, their adherence to old forms and customs, their general unwillingness to do differently from their ancestors, and the not over-amiable character of the majority of the foreigners that went there to trade. It is not surprising that many years were required for commercial relations to grow up and become permanent. The wars between China and the Western powers did more than centuries of peace could have done to open the Oriental eyes. Austria's defeat on the field of Sadoa advanced and enlightened her more than a hundred years of peace and victory could have done. At her old rate of progress, the victories of the Allied forces in China, culminating in the capture of Pekin and dictation of terms by the foreign leaders, opened the way for a free intercourse between the East and West, and the immense advantages that an unrestricted commerce is sure to bring to an industrious, energetic, and economical people, with a river system unsurpassed by that of any other nation of the world. China relied upon navigation by junks, which crept slowly against the current when urged by strong winds and lay idle or were towed or pulled by men when comes or had breezes prevailed, of steam applied to propulsion, she had no knowledge, until steamboats of foreign construction appeared in her waters and roused the wonder of the oblique-eyed natives by their mysterious powers, the first steamboat to ascend a Chinese river created a greater sensation than did the Clordermont on her initial voyage along the Hudson or her western prototype, several years later, among the Indians of the upper Missouri, in 1839 the first steam venture was made in China. An English house placed a boat on the route between Canton and Macau, and advertised it to carry freight and passengers on stated days. For the first six months the passengers averaged about a dozen to each trip half of them Europeans, 
and the rest natives, the second half year the number of native patrons increased, and by the end of the second year the boat, on nearly every trip, was filled with Chinese, the trade became so lucrative that another boat was brought from England and placed on the route, which continued to be a source of profit until the business was overdone by opposition lines, as soon as the treaties permitted, steamers were introduced into the coasting trade of China, and subsequently upon the rivers and other inland waters, the Chinese merchants perceived the importance of rapid and certain transportation for their goods in place of the slow and unreliable service of their junks, and the advance in rates was overbalanced by the increased facilities and the opportunities of the merchants to make six times as many ventures annually as by the old system. Footnote E, a gentleman once described to me the sensation produced by the first steam vessel that ascended one of the Chinese rivers. It was, said he, a screw steamer, and we were burning anthracite coal that made no smoke. The current was about two miles an hour, and with wind and water unfavorable, the Chinese boats bound upward were slowly dragged by men pulling at long tow lines. We steamed up the middle of the stream, going as rapidly as we dared with our imperfect knowledge, and the necessity of constant sounding. Our propeller was quite beneath the water and so far as outward appearance went there was no visible power to move us. Chinamen are generally slow to manifest astonishment, and not easily frightened, but their excitement on that occasion was hardly within bounds. Men, women, and children ran to see the monster, and after gazing a few moments a fair proportion of them took to their heels for safety. Dogs barked and yelped on all the notes of the chromatic scale. Occasional boats crews jumped to the shore and those who stuck to their oars did their best to get out of our way. Probably there is no people in the world that can be called a nation of shopkeepers more justly than the Chinese, thousands upon thousands of them are engaged in petty trade, and the competition is very keen. Of course, where there is an active traffic the profits are small, and anything that can assist the prompt delivery of merchandise and the speedy transmission of intelligence, money, credits, or the merchant himself is certain to be brought into full use. No accurate statistics are at hand of the number of foreign steamers now in China, but well-informed parties estimate the burden of American coasting and river vessels at upward of 30,000 tons, while that of other nationalities is much larger. Steamboats, with a burden of more than 10,000 tons, are owned by Chinese merchants, and about half that quantity is the joint property of Chinese and foreigners, in managing their boats and watching the current expenses. The Chinese are quite equal to the English and Americans, and are sometimes able to carry freight upon terms ruinous to foreign competitors. Foreign systems of banking and insurance have been adopted, and work successfully. The Chinese had a mode of banking long before time European nations possessed much knowledge of financial matters, and it is claimed that the first circulating notes and bills of credit ever issued had their origin during a monetary pressure at Pekin. But they were so unprogressive that, when intercourse was opened with the Western world, they found their own system defective, and were forced to adopt the foreign innovation. Insurance companies were first owned and managed by foreigners at the open ports, and as soon as the plan of securing themselves against loss by casualties was understood by the Chinese merchants, they began to form companies on their own account, and carry their operations to the interior of the empire. All the intricacies of the insurance business even to the formation of fraudulent companies, with imaginary officers, and an explosion at a propitious moment are fully understood and practiced by the Chinese, by the facilities which the advent of foreigners has introduced to the Chinese, 
the native trade along the rivers and with the open ports has rapidly increased. On the rivers and along the coast the steamers and native boats are actively engaged, and the population of the open ports has largely increased in consequence of the attractions offered to the people of all grades and professions. The greatest extension has been in the foreign trade, which, from small beginnings, now amounts to more than 900 millions of dollars annually, where formerly a dozen or more vessels crept into Canton yearly. There are now hundreds of ships and steamers traversing the ocean to and from the accessible points of the coast of the Great Eastern Empire. America has a large share of this commerce with China, and from the little beginning, in 1786, she has increased her maritime service, until she now has a fleet of sailing ships second to none in the world, and a line of magnificent steamers plying regularly across the Pacific, and bringing the East in closer alliance with the West than ever before. Railways will naturally follow the steamboat, and an English company is now arranging to supply the Chinese with a railway system to connect the principal cities, and especially to tap the interior districts, where the water communications are limited. There is no regular system of mail communication in China, the government transmits intelligence by means of couriers, and when merchants have occasion to communicate with persons at a distance they use private expresses, foreign and native merchants doing an extensive business, keeps with steamers, which they use as dispatch boats, and sometimes send them at heavy expense to transmit single messages. It has happened that, on a sudden change of markets, two or more houses in Hong Kong or Shanghai have dispatched boats at the same moment, and some interesting and exciting races are recorded in the local histories. The barriers of Chinese exclusion were broken down when the treaties of the past ten years opened the empire to foreigners and placed the name of China on the list of diplomatic and treaty powers. The last stone of the wall that shut the nation from the outer world was overthrown when the court at Peking sent an embassy, headed by a distinguished American, to visit the capitals of the Western nations, and cement the bonds of friendship between the West and the East. It was eminently fitting that an American should be selected as the head of this embassy, and eminently fitting, too that the ambassador of the oldest nation should first visit the youngest of all the great powers of the world, America, just emerged from the garments of childhood, and with full pride and consciousness of its youthful strength, presents to ruddy England, smiling France, and the other members of the family of nations, graybeard and dignified China, who expresses joy at the introduction, and hopes for a better acquaintance in the years that are to come, during his residence at Peking. Mr. Berlingame interested himself in endeavoring to introduce the telegraph into China, and though meeting with opposition on account of certain superstitions of the Chinese, he was ultimately successful. The Chinese do not understand the working of the telegraph at least the great majority of them do not and like many other people elsewhere, with regard to anything incomprehensible, they are inclined to ascribe it to a satanic origin. In California, the Chinese residents make a liberal use of the telegraph, Though they do not trouble themselves with an investigation of its workings, they fully appreciate its importance. John, in California, is at liberty to send his messages in Pigeon English, and very funny work he makes of it occasionally. Chin Line, in Sacramento, telegraphs to Minyup, in San Francisco, you me send one PC me trunk, which means, in plain language, send me my trunk. Mr. Yup complies with the request, and responds by telegraph. Me you trunk e you send e. The inventor of Pigeon English is unknown, and it is well for his name that it has not been handed down, 
he deserves the execration of all who are compelled to use the legacy he has left. It is just as difficult for a Chinese to learn pidgin English as it would be to learn pure and honest English, and it is about as intelligible as Greek or Sanskrit to a newly arrived foreigner. In Shanghai or Hong Kong, say to your Chinese mafu, who claims to speak English, bring me a glass of water, and he will not understand you. Repeat your order in those words, and he stands dumb and incomprehending, as though you had spoken the dialect of the moon. But if you say, you go me catchy bring one PC glass water, say thee, and his tiny face beams intelligence as he obeys the order. In the phrase, pigeon English, the word pigeon means business, and the expression would be more intelligible if it were business English. Many foreigners living in China have formed the habit of using this and other words in their Chinese sense, and sometimes one hears an affair of business called a pigeon. A gentleman whom I met in China used to tell, with a great deal of humor, his early experiences with the language. When I went to Shanghai, said he, I had an introduction to a prominent merchant, who received me very kindly, and urged me to call often at his office. A day or two later I called, and inquired for him, won't be back for a week or two, said the clerk, he has gone into the country, about two hundred miles, after a little pigeon. I asked no questions, but as I bowed myself out, I thought, he must be a fool. Indeed, go two hundred miles into the country after a pigeon, and a little one at that, he has lost his senses, if he ever possessed any, nearly all the trade with China is carried on at the southern and eastern ports, and comparatively few of the foreign merchants in China have ever been at Peking, which was opened only a few years ago, but the war with the allied powers, the humiliation of the government, the successes of the rebels, and the threatened extinction of the ruling dynasty led to important changes of policy. The Treaty of Tientsin, in 1860, opened the empire as it had never been opened before. Foreigners could travel in China where they wished, for business or pleasure, and the navigable rivers were declared free to foreign boats. Pekin was open to travelers but not to foreign merchants, but it is probable that commerce will be carried to that city before long. There is an extensive trade at Tientsin, 90 miles south of the capital and when it becomes necessary to carry it to the doors of the palace of the celestial ruler, the diplomats will not be slow to find a sufficient pretext for it. Chapter XXX The great cities of China are very much alike in their general features. None of them have wide streets, except in the foreign quarters, and none of them are clean, in their abundance of dirt they can even excel New York, and it would be worth a while for the rulers of the American metropolis to visit China and see how filthy a city can be made without half trying. The most interesting city in China is Peking, for the reason that it has long been the capital, and contains many monuments of the past greatness and the glorious history of the celestial empire. Its temples are massive, and show that the Chinese, hundreds of years ago, were no mean architects. Its walls could resist any of the ordinary appliances of war before the invention of artillery, and even the tombs of its rulers are monuments of skill and patience that awaken the admiration of every beholder. Throughout China Peking is reverentially regarded, and in many localities the man who has visited it is regarded as a hero. Though the capital, it is the most northern city of large population in the whole empire. Peking is divided into the Chinese city and the Tartar one. The division was made at the time of the Tartar conquest, and for many years the two people refused to associate freely. A wall separates the cities, the gates through it are closed at night, and only open when sufficient reason is given. 
If the party who desires to pass the gate can give no verbal excuse he has only to drop some money in the hands of the gatekeeper, and the pecuniary apology is considered entirely satisfactory. Time has softened the asperities of Charter and Chinese Association, so that the two people mingle freely, and it is impossible for a stranger to distinguish one from the other. Many Chinese live in the Tartar town and transact business, and I fancy that they would not always find it easy to explain their pedigree, or, at all events, that of some of their children. The foreign legations are in the Tartar city, for the reason that the government offices are there, and also for the reason that it is the most pleasant, or the least unpleasant, part of Peking to reside in. All the embassies have spacious quarters, with the exception of the Russian one, which is the oldest. When it was established there it was a great favor to be allowed any residence whatever. From the center gate between the Chinese and Tartar cities there is a street two or three miles long, and having the advantages of being wide, straight, and dirty, it is blocked up with all sorts of hucksters stalls and shops, and is kept noisy with the shouts of the people who have innumerable articles for sale. Especially in summer is there a liberal assemblage of peddlers, jugglers, beggars, donkey drivers, merchants, idlers, and all the other professions and non-professions that go to make up a population. The peddlers have fruit and other edibles, not omitting an occasional string of rats suspended from bamboo poles, and attached to cards on which the prices, and sometimes the excellent qualities of the rodents, are set forth. It is proper to remark that the Chinese are greatly slandered on the rat question. As a people they are not given to eating these little animals. It is only among the poorer classes that they are tolerated, and then only because they are the cheapest food that can be obtained. I was always suspicious when the Chinese urged me to partake of little meat pies and dumplings, whose components I could only guess at, and when the things were forced upon me I proclaimed a great fondness for stewed duck and chicken, which were manifestly all right. But I frankly admit that I do not believe they would have inveigled me into swallowing articles to which the European mind is prejudiced and my aversion arose from a general repugnance to hash in all forms a repugnance which had its origin in American hotels and restaurants. The jugglers are word of little notice, more I believe than they obtain from their countrymen. They attract good audiences along the great street of Peking, but after swallowing enough stone to load a pack mule, throwing up large PR, 